Welcome to Working Towards Nine, a podcast that strives to secure the full and equal participation of women in the legal profession, produced by the Women Lawyers Association of Michigan. Hello there, my name is Kirsten Solanowitz. I'm an Associate General Counsel at the Great Lakes Water Authority and the Treasurer for the Women Lawyers Association of Michigan. Welcome everyone, and thank you so much, Chief Justice Clement, for joining us for this first episode of the WLAM podcast, Working Towards Nine. We are so lucky to have you involved in our organization, and I cannot think of a better person to kick off this new initiative for WLAM with. So let's get started. Prior to serving on the Michigan Supreme Court, you served as Chief Legal Counsel in the Executive Branch, advising on a wide variety of legal, legislative, and policy matters. Your duties as Chief Legal Counsel included working with the Attorney General's Office on litigation affecting the state of Michigan, negotiating tribal compacts and settlement agreements, and interviewing and recommending appointees to Court of Appeals and Supreme Court judicial vacancies. In addition, you previously held the positions of Cabinet Secretary and Deputy Chief of Staff, as well as Deputy Legal Counsel in the Governor's Office. How do you think this experience has impacted your service on the bench and now in your role as Chief Justice? All of the justices bring a unique background to the bench. What I brought was service in not just private practice when I started my legal career, but in the other branches of government and really understanding not just from what I've learned in my government classes growing up, but getting a real understanding of how government works and how the U.S. Constitution, the state constitution set up branches of government. Working in the legislative branch and then in the executive branch when I worked for the governor, I got an understanding and appreciation for the role of each branch. So when I joined the court with my colleagues, they hadn't had those experiences where, you know, they made either assumptions, thought the legislature must have meant this or the executive branch must be doing this. And having worked as a staff person, I could explain, this is my experience and this is how I saw things working. And it really solidified as a justice when I was looking at cases, how I was interpreting statute, how I was interpreting the constitution and the deference that I was giving to those other branches of government to do their role and for us to really restrain ourselves, our role judges. And then as that impacted me as chief, I feel like those experiences that I had, especially working in the executive branch, really have prepared me very well to be the chief. As soon as I I took over in November, and I have to say, you know, my relationship with the prior chief, Justice Bridget McCormick, a great relationship, and I worked with her on so many things. So the transition was already going to be, I think, really seamless, but because of my experience, I know how the legislative process works. I know how the executive process works, budgeting. And so I was able to step in and not have to learn all of the things that the state court administrative office and the Supreme Court were doing on those sides. It was, you know, it was picked it back up. And I also think that both in my roles in the legislature and the executive branch, have a reputation of being a listener and being someone that brings people to the table, tries to find areas of common understanding, compromise. And I've really taken that, you know, that skill and that focus to to the role as chief to make sure that whether it's on the case side and working with my colleagues, or if it's on the administrative side, working with all of our colleagues on the trial court benches or the court of appeals or all of the stakeholders in the judiciary, that we're making sure that everyone 
has a voice and that they feel heard and that we're making decisions with all of that input in mind. That's really great. I work at the Great Lakes Water Authority now, and I used to work at the local bus authority, SMART, in Detroit. It's always been part of my passion to do as an attorney. We always have these wild dreams of making a difference, and I feel like I do every day because of the role that I sit in, and I'm sure you felt the same way, not only in your previous roles, but in what you're currently doing now, so that's really a tremendous thing. As a justice on the Michigan Supreme Court, you've worked as the court's co-liaison to the State Court Administrative Office, Department of Child Welfare Services, which helps juvenile courts on child welfare matters, including child protective proceedings, foster care adoption, termination of parental rights, permanency outcomes, and data collection and analysis. In addition, you've served as liaison to more than 200 problem-solving courts in the state of Michigan and the Michigan Judicial Institute including drug and sobriety, mental health veterans, and other non-traditional courts. These problem-solving courts focus on providing treatment and intense supervision to offenders, resulting in improved quality of life, reduced crime, safer communities, and avoiding costly incarceration. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how this incredibly important work that you've done has impacted the state of Michigan and its constituents? Yeah, I would start by saying it's really the work of all of the individuals that are working in those systems. So whether you're talking about child welfare or you're talking about problem-solving courts, it is our trial judges, it is it is attorneys, it's court staff, community support, or our partners with DHS. It's them that do all of the work. I have the honor of, of serving, as all the justices do, in liaison roles. And our goal is to really help support all of the work that's being done. And then when issues or challenges come up to help navigate those and find solutions to those. So you, know, you mentioned you know, child welfare. I previously was the co-liaison with Justice Kavanaugh and the work that is being done on the child welfare side is absolutely transformational to what we're doing in Michigan. I started in private practice over 20 years ago and I was involved in family law. The natural goal at that time was definitely protecting kids, but the initial reaction was remove kids from their home and put them in foster care. And we looked at data, we looked at the success of that and we realized it was not working. And policy decisions were made and the focus now, keeping kids at, with their families, if we can keep them safe. Because what we know is that in abuse and neglect cases, a very small percentage of them are actual abuse cases where you absolutely need to remove a child from the home to keep them safe. But in the rest of the cases, so many of those neglect cases are really due to um, socioeconomic issues and poverty. And so the goal is how do we get those families the assistance that they need? So whether that is stable housing, transportation, education needs to support the family so that we can keep them together. Because we know that removing a child from a home, especially in those cases where, where it really is due to those other, those other issues, causes trauma, secondary trauma to kids. Um, I've seen that change, really rewarding to be able to support all of the work that's being done around the state, our trial courts and their teams to look at each and every child and each and every family and try to make decisions about what's best for them. And the same is true with problem-solving courts. 
those courts came about because we had judges around the state saying, I'm seeing the same individuals coming back through the court system for very similar offenses. And they knew that typical probation was not working. And those judges on their own creating what we're calling problem-solving courts to really get at the root of what is causing an individual to interact with the justice system. Today, we have over 200 problem-solving courts that address alcohol, drug, mental health, veterans issues. Those teams that support these participants look at things holistically. It is intensive. It is a lot of work for the participant, but we track the data and we know that those individuals are are more successful going through a problem-solving court program than traditional probation. And I traveled the state. I've had the option and the ability to go to a number of team meetings or graduations. And there has not been one that I have gone to where someone, a participant in the program or their family members that were there at the graduation didn't say, you saved my life or you saved my son, daughter, husband, wife, friend's life. And so we have the data to support it, but we also have those real life stories of people saying, without this program, I don't know where I would be. And then drawing the connection between the two. We had some really smart judges that were running some problem solving courts. Just in talking to participants, realized that they were hearing a lot that either that participant been in the child welfare system were growing up or currently had one of their dependents involved in the child welfare system. And they started tracking data and we weren't able to verify it. They were just doing it like an intake and they found an 89% connection. 89% of participants had been involved in the child welfare system. So we see that continuum and we know that we can't just address it on the adult side with very young kids. We have to be addressing this as family and community issues to really break the cycles. Again, it's something that I've had the honor of being able to support all of the work, the tremendous work that so many people around the state are doing to, to really change, change lives for people. That's really incredible and astonishing that 89%. I'm glad that those courts are in place to help break that cycle. Like you said, it's truly incredible work that they are doing. And I'm glad that you have the ability or have had the ability in the past to support it and that the court continues to support it because it is very important. So shifting now back into your role as chief justice, what would you say is one goal that you would want to accomplish as chief justice of the Michigan Supreme Court? Oh, I can't pick just one goal. (laughs) That's okay. You can have two or three, however many you like. We are, we are doing so much work, especially, you know, on the administrative side and have created under our prior chief, Justice McCormick, the Michigan Judicial Council to bring all stakeholders of the judiciary together to talk about what the mission and goals and strategic agenda for the judiciary in Michigan and envision that being in one year and in five years. So that kind of outlines our overall plan. So I think the easy answer would be implement what the Judicial (laughs) Council recommendations are. But I would start with civility on the court side. I think going back 10, 15 years, the Michigan Supreme Court did not have the best reputation. That has has changed. Um, And it's changed because of different personalities focusing on civility, working together to change the perception of the Michigan Supreme Court. I am very focused on that, as are all of my colleagues. You know, we get along very well, even when we disagree on 
cases or administrative issues, those conversations that we have, they're respectful, we're listening to one another <clears throat> with the goal that whether it's an opinion coming out of our court or it's an administrative decision coming out of the court that we're looking at who is the recipient of that. It's the bench, it's the bar, it's the public and making sure that is our focus of being as clear, concise and transparent as to what the rules are, whether that's again in a case or on the administrative side and doing that in a way that shows the highest court in Michigan respects one another. We are focused on civility and are not going to go back to those years, you know, 10 or 15 years ago where that wasn't the perception by the public, by judges. So that is definitely something that is on my mind every day as the court is doing its work. Another priority, and this is personal to me, something that I've worked on my entire career, especially since I joined the court in regards to juvenile justice. I was on the governor's task force for juvenile justice reform, which was led by Lieutenant Governor Gilcrest. And that task force worked very diligently with, I can't even count how many Zoom hours of meetings we had to come up with recommendations. And we are now at the point where we're working with the legislature recommendations. We're working on the court side, court rule changes. We're working with DHS on, on policy changes. Um, I spoke about earlier, you've got the child welfare on one end, you've got the adult side on the other. And I personally feel that for too long, youth in the juvenile justice system have not been prioritized. I appreciate that the governor stepped up and prioritized youth in that system and that we're able to focus those kids, many of them have gone through the child welfare system. And if we don't implement these best practices and things that we are already seeing being done in so many courts around the state that are doing things really well, if we don't take those and model that for the entire state, we're not going to be able to help kids in the system entering the adult system. We really need to focus that subset of kids as well. So something that I'm very passionate about and very excited that, that there's so much interest in leadership in the legislature to do this. We are starting or creating a division at the State Court Administrative Office to focus on juvenile justice, work with our current child welfare agency to make sure that we are there to support all of those recommendations and quality assurance and data collection. So something that I'm very excited about personally, I'm very confident from the discussions that we've had and the support that we have in the other branches of government, that we are going to be able to make some really important reforms to the juvenile justice system. That's incredible. I'm glad that SCAO is creating that division. I'm sure it'll make a huge impact on how the courts operate and how they handle some of these cases moving forward. We received a very large appropriation in the last budget cycle for a statewide case management system. And we are in the process of identifying how we're going to move forward with that and what that looks like going forward. And why that matters is because we have various case management systems around the state and they're not all collecting the same data. It's not all coming to one place where you can look at everything. We saw issues when we were doing the work, the Juvenile Justice Task Force, where there was data that we just didn't have. Um, and once we have a statewide case management system and we're comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges, we will be able to really help the policy makers make decisions. We'll be able to share that data 
and let them know what's working, what's not working, break down some of those barriers that we currently have. So very excited about that. It's going to be a long project, but once we have in the state on a statewide case management system, we'll be able to talk to other systems and really have a better picture of what's going on in the judiciary in Michigan. That'll be an incredible undertaking, especially statewide, but the payoff will be incredible in the long run. I'm excited to hear that. I know I don't do litigation much anymore. I'm more transactional at work, but everybody that I know either does litigation, either criminal defense or as a judge, they are very much looking forward to this. I know it's only been a few months, but I'm curious, what have you been enjoying the most about serving as chief justice on the Michigan Supreme Court? And what are you looking forward to the most? The thing that I found the most enjoyable working the staff, that we have incredible leadership at the state court administrative office and at the Supreme Court. I obviously worked with them before, but this is a different capacity. And you know, we would not be able to do all of the things that I've talked about and so many other things that we're working on without the support of really, you know, incredibly intelligent, but maybe more importantly, passionate people that care about our branch of government, work tirelessly, you know, day in and day out on all of the things that I just spoke about on so many other things. It's really just been great you know, through the transition and taking over to have such a talented leadership team, staff throughout the state court administrative office, as well as colleagues, the trial court bench and the court of appeals. It's been really nice, you know, having more opportunity to interact all of them and their associations to hear, you know, what their concerns are, the awesome things that they're doing that we can help support. And it's one of those things that I, I knew was part of the job. I didn't know that I was going to enjoy that, that part of it. Is it, it makes it easier when you have a lot of work to do <laughs> to have faith, know that you've got the best team possible. There are several mom lawyers out there that are trying to balance it all. I hate asking this question because I know women specifically only get this question, but it is something that we're all struggling with. You know, I have a three-year-old and we're in the middle of potty training right now and I love him, but it is a trying time between that and work and the rest of my family obligations. So how do you balance it between your career, your family, your own individual identity? How has being a mother impacted your career, especially now serving in your new chief justice role? I like what you said, you know, that you hate asking this question and you feel like only women get it. I'll share just a little story. When I was first appointed to the bench in 2017, and I had to run in 2018 for a full term, when I would tell just my basic bio, I would say that I have four children. I cannot even tell you how many events that I was at where people said to me, you have four children. Oh my gosh, how, how do you do this? And the first time I was asked that, I didn't really have a good response right away. Mm -hmm. I was taken by surprise. But then my response became the same every single time I got asked. And what I would say is no one has ever asked my husband Mm -hmm. who has four children. He's also a lawyer, how he does it. I think, and I didn't say it in a way that was, you know, you know, passive aggressive or negative. I just said that back to them. And so many people engaged in a conversation with me and said, wow, you know, I've never thought of that. And I don't think I would have asked your husband. And a conversation came from that. And I think that was really helpful to me and to the people who are making, you know, those questions or comments. You know, the reality is, I'm going to be frank, you have a three-year-old. I have four. My youngest is 15. There is 
no such thing as like perfect work-life balance because you don't have control over so many things. You don't have control over, you know, what, what happens with your children or your family or parents, you know, I mean, this isn't just limited to moms. I talk to a lot of women out there that, you know, maybe don't have children, don't have children yet and are dealing with, you know, other family issues. And the reality is that you've got to do the best that you can, not hold yourself up to a perfect standard because you're never going to reach that. And whether you have a three-year-old or you have a 16-year-old or a 25-year-old or aging parents or an ill relative, something is going to happen. It's going to take your attention away from work that you either have to be, you want to be focused on or vice versa. I've had kids you know, in various places this past week. And my daughter came home from school and had medical appointments and I need to focus on that. And I'm getting emails of, you know, questions that need to be answered and you just do the the best that you can. I have never found that perfect balance at any point in my career, never had a job where I said, oh, this is the perfect amount of work to be able to (laughs) give everything I need to, to my family. I think the two important things that I keep in mind is always checking in with myself and being, you know, very, very objective and saying, you know, looking at my week or looking at the month and saying, you know, have I been able to, you know, get things done that, that I need to get done on the work side? And I'm, am I engaged with my family in a way that is, you know, not just satisfactory to me, but to them as well. And making sure that, that, that those relationships are strong. But the other piece of it is making sure that you're taking care of yourself. And for so many women, and I think it's probably men as well, they struggle with that part because we, you know, especially in this field, being a lawyer or being in the legal field is, it's a lot of work. And then you have a family, you know, in addition to that or on top of that, and it's hard to find time for yourself. But it's really important. And actually, Justice Megan Cavanaugh, one of my colleagues, is very focused on wellness in the judicial branch. And she's just getting started with all of that. But I fully support everything that she's doing because it's so important for us to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves because we're not going to be able to do either job, whether that's on the family side, you know, the personal side or our work side, if we're not taking care of ourselves. So I always urge people you know, there's always time. You can find that time to do things that help you, you know, with your mental, emotional, you know, psychological and and physical health. You've got to find what those things are. You know, for me, it's simple things like doing yoga. Even if I can only get there, you know, once a week, you know, going for walks. I love jigsaw puzzles. And like that to me is like something that I can just step away from work or personal even if it's for 20 minutes and decompress my brain. And I always find that even just taking that little break and doing something for myself, then when I go back to work or parenting or, you know, other relationships, I feel that I'm able to give more and that my, my ability to connect and be passionate in, in, in those other things is increased because I've taken even just a few minutes, um, you know, to, to check in and take care of myself. We started a mom committee a few years ago through WLAM and it's been incredible. I co-chair that committee with Patricia Woodruff, who's one of the directors at large for the state board. And our main theme is respite from the other. It's a famous associate justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote that she would say, you know, time away from my work was, would give me a break for my kids. And then 
my kids would give me a break from work and vice versa. And one would help serve the other because you can't do it all. And once you admit that that's impossible, then it becomes a little less Daunting. difficult. Yeah. Right. It, the, yeah. the pressure's off and then you can just do your best. And that's really great advice. Thank you. So you are the 11th woman to serve on the Michigan Supreme Court and the seventh woman chief justice. This is only the fifth time women have served as a majority on the Michigan Supreme Court. The first time being in 1997, and then the second, third, and fourth being 2009, 2011, and 2021. However, we all know that there's a lot more work to do to achieve equality on the bench and in the practice of law. What do you think Michiganders can do to continue to progress to achieve equality and leave it better for the next generation? So yes, I think Michigan has made, you know, great strides towards, you know, improving at least gender equality on the bench. Although when I joined the bench, I was the 11th woman to serve out of a hundred and I think at that time, 113 total justices. Obviously those numbers have changed because we've had new members join since then. And all of the new members that have joined since then have all been women. And we see around the state, you know, an increase in women serving as judges. Those numbers have drastically increased. And I think we see that an increase in women attending law school and practicing. But I've talked with a lot of various women organizations that still identify challenges to women in this profession, whether that is, you know, their career track, whether they are going to go for partner, whether they feel that they can, you know, step away even a little bit to start a family. And we've got to keep having those conversations so that women want to continue being involved and having their voices heard in this profession and in this branch of government. I think now, you know, we should, we should really focus on equality in other aspects. You know, I think we look around the state and look at our court And, you know, this is the first time that we've had a female African-American justice on the Michigan Supreme Court, which I have to say, I am incredibly thrilled about. I think it's fantastic. I'm very excited. And I'm very excited that it's Justice Kyra Bolden that is my new colleague. But there's also a piece of me that says, why did this take so long? You know, what is it about our system that this took so long for this historic milestone to happen? And how do we identify what those other areas are that we should not have to wait that long to see equality, either on the bench or in the profession? You know, I see a lot of, I see a lot of improvement around the state in these areas, but there's so much more work that, that, that can be done. And we're very focused on that. One of my colleagues, Justice Elizabeth Welch, is co-chair of our diversity, equity, and inclusion work group. And their focus is on on diversity, equity, and inclusion, not just on the bench and not just in the, you know, practice of law, but even when you're looking at, you know, who works in the court system and individuals that are interacting with the court system and what their experience is like. And if they're feeling that they're being served in a way where those things are being taken into consideration and account. And it's a lot of work and we've got a long way to go, but I feel very confident that we are on the right path and that you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, listening and hearing the voices of people that are impacted 
and people that have had, have had experiences that can help shed light on where we are now and where we need to go is going to be really beneficial to the work that's being done there. And I'm optimistic. I, I think when I talk to younger lawyers in the profession and what their goals are, what their concerns are, you know, so much of, you know, especially on the gender side, so much of those stereotypes have been broken down. You know, when I talk, whether it's women or men, you know, younger people seem to think, okay, that's great, but isn't that the way that it should be? I remember when, when I joined the court, I got four kids, two girls and two boys. And I had so many people say to me, oh, your daughters must be so proud of you. And I was like, yes, they're very proud of me, but so are my sons. Men are, are just as supportive and, and excited about these things, especially, you know, younger men. You know, I feel like there's no longer, not that it's gone completely, but there's definitely a shift in seeing that we need to have equality, you know, across the board, but especially as we talk about the, this profession and this branch of government. I was doing some research and it, I discovered the Brennan Center for Justice does an annual update about state Supreme Court diversity. And I'm excited to see their 2023 update this year because, of course, the Michigan Supreme Court will have a majority of women and our first African-American female justice on it. And because there is this representation now on the bench, so many young women and young women law students have been inspired to continue to shatter that glass ceiling. What advice would you give to law students who are looking at the new makeup of the Michigan Supreme Court and are feeling inspired to try to achieve what you have moving forward? What advice would you give to them? You know, I'm grateful that I have the opportunity. I, I teach at Michigan State Law School and I live like a mile from campus. So I have a lot of opportunity to go and talk to law students and undergrad students as well. You know, the advice that I give, and I think back to when I was a new attorney and I worked in a field after I was, after I stopped private practice and I went to back to the government to, to work, there were very few female lawyers, very few. Um, thankfully, I had a lot of really great mentors that helped me in my career, but I can't say that I, that I was able to look at the, either the composition of the Michigan Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court and say, this is possible for me or for anyone. My focus was for my career to follow my passion and to do things that mattered to me that I felt made a difference. And it got me to the path that ended up with me getting on the court. And I think that you would hear that from my other female colleagues on the court. You know, we all have very different backgrounds and none of which I would think anybody would say that is the path to, to get, you know, to get on the bench or to get on the Michigan Supreme Court. And that should give them inspiration and that should give them hope that it doesn't, it, there's not one formula where you have to do these, you know, specific things. You can start your legal practice and your career thinking that you want to do, go in one direction and you may be pulled into something else. For me, I went to law school thinking that I was going to go back to practice in public service. And I met a professor and had a class on family law and something that I had was never interested in before. And it sparked a passion in me, both because my professor was amazing and because I was able to do an internship at Legal Aid and have interaction with real people that were going through very difficult times in their lives. And had I not had that experience 
I wouldn't have had the beginning of my legal career practicing in private practice doing that work, which has then, you know, carried through in every other job that I've had throughout my career. My message to, you know, women, men, you know, to look at, you know, people that are in leadership positions or people that have attained maybe something that you aspire to and realize that you can craft your own path to that. To the most important thing is to find something that you're passionate about and that you feel like you are, like you are providing, you know, a service to the public or your clients that make an impact on people or businesses that you feel proud of. And I think if you do that, instead of having the goal of, I want to be this, you know, at this point in my career, not only will you be more likely to attain those goals, but you're going to be a lot happier in the process. And I think have a lot more fulfillment in, in the jobs that you're doing. That's great advice, especially because the makeup of the Supreme Court, like you said, all, everybody has a different background and everybody looks different and has different opinions. And that's a good thing. You know, you want that on the bench and in practice, and that's what strikes good and decent debate and makes change. Several new issues have come up to the Michigan Supreme Court lately, including banning discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and placing proposals on voting rights and abortion on the November 2022 ballot. How does it feel to have been a justice involved in some of these important but controversial decisions? You know, I think with the state of affairs that are in the country and in our state, I feel that it's so important that the judicial branch is separate from the other two branches of government in the work that we do. You expect divisiveness and conflict and disagreement in the other branches of government. And we see that, right? And that's, that is our government at work with elections and, you know, change. And I think that's a positive thing, even if things have gotten so divisive that, you know, that people are concerned about it, it, those other branches of government are working the way that they should. With the judiciary, you know, the expectation and the way that it was envisioned by our founding fathers, you know, drafting the constitution is that the judiciary would be completely separate from the partisan politics that exist in the other branches of government. So, you know, our goal is to make sure that the public has trust in the judiciary, that we are leaving the politics out of decision making, so that everyone knows that when they come to the court, that they're going to get a fair and independent and transparent review of the issue that they're bringing before the court. So to your question about some of these, you know, more important and controversial issues, Sometimes our, the court is called on to, to weigh in on those. Our preference is probably that the other branches of government, when possible, resolve those issues through their processes. And especially given my background working in the legislature and the executive branch, you know, I feel very strongly about that. If it's a policy decision, we may not like what's going on, but we can't substitute our policy preference because there's seven of us. You know, yes, we're statewide elected justices, but there's seven of us and one person leaves and another person joins that, you know, their personal position on something may change. Our job is to stay out of the policy area. And so I think we've done a really good job of that. And so when these issues come before us, I feel like that the public can have confidence that 
we're looking at this and looking at the law, looking at the constitution and saying and making a decision based on that and not on, on what any of our personal preferences are. At least for me, that's the job that I do and that I hope that that others and I think that that you see that with our court, that we do our best to stay out of that. Now, does that mean that we're not aware that some of our decisions are on these, you know, very important and controversial topics? No, obviously we're aware. And we take the job that we have to do when those questions come to us, you know, very, very seriously and have you know, very, very good, you know, conversation and debate about them and make sure that, you know, the decisions that come from the court are clear and that the public knows why that decision was what it was, or if there was a dissent, you know, what that opposing position is. It's one of those things where, um, you know, there've been a number of things since I joined the court that have been those more controversial issues. And, you know, regardless of my personal opinion or my prior experience working in partisan politics, none of that has come into play when, when I'm looking at these cases and making decisions. And so that's something that, you know, that, I, that I'm very proud of and I think is important for an independent judiciary. I agree. Definitely the Founding Fathers intended the judicial branch to be a separate entity, a separate independent institution that, you know, can make decisions based on the law and the Constitution. And like you said, you leave it to the other branches of government to institute those other policies. And so it's always interesting to see a Supreme Court decision come down and then to see, for example, the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act get modified to better align with not just the legislative intent of what the Elliott Larson Act is, but also seeing the interpretation from the court and making that into permanent legislation that will, you know, hopefully sit and our kids will be able to benefit from those things moving forward, knowing that their rights are further protected not just within the recent legislation, but because of the Supreme Court independence of the other two branches of government. And I think you raise a good point that we definitely see and think about. And people need to remember that, you know, courts change. You know, you see it less on the federal side because of lifetime appointments, but in state courts, courts change. And, you know, the example that you gave on Elliot Larson, we had a decision just last term and this legislature has decided to make you know changes to the actual statute and that's for protection purposes that's to say even if the court changes and were to reverse their decision we have this in statute it is clear and this is you know this is what it you know moves moves forward regardless of what happens on the court and i think that's mm-hmm. important and it's good to see you know regardless of what the issue is you know and even even if the legislature decides to do the opposite of what we said, you know, I guess, unless it's a constitutional interpretation, but if we say a statute says this and they go and change it, great, that's their job. You know, that that's, that's the system working the way that it's supposed to. And there's also times that, you know, we have interpreted statutes and we either, you know, think that it's not a great idea or that the words that were used by the legislature, we're interpreting them because we think that they're clear, but we don't think that's what the legislature actually meant. And we will write what you know we call like love letters to the legislature and a concurrence or a dissent where we flag that like, hey, this was the decision. We don't think that this is what you intend with the statute. You may need to look at this. And so that's a way that we can just kind of raise issues that you know, we're not going to do the opposite because 
we're following the law, but we raise it for another branch of government to take a look at and say, huh, we might need to go in here and change this. It provides a good checks and balances between the two branches and really all three branches that, you know, if you say yes or no on one thing, they'll go back and change course in order to give that piece of legislation that intent that it really needed. So it's always incredible because I always feel like the subject matter expert at family dinners to explain how these things work. I enjoy reading Supreme Court decisions and the new legislation about how one impacts the other. So it's always nice to go to those family dinners and explain the process. And they go, oh, I see. And I said, this is what checks and balances are for. This is the system working the way it should be working. I'm glad that you do that. Because, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, so many people just, you know, read a news article or hear yeah. and they, and I get it, you know, I mean, if you're not, if you're not, you know, don't know how or I'm engaged in something where you can really dig deep in it, you rely on other people to, to you know, that yeah. have that expertise and can explain, you know, right. why things worked a certain way, even if you right. disagree. I mean, you may disagree right. with the decision of our court, but you can explain, here's how they reached that decision. I would have gone the other way, but, right. you know, I, I think it's, you know, I think it, it makes sense that they, you know, that this was, that their, right. their opinion makes sense. I just, you know, I just disagree with it. And right. you'd rather have that than have people not have faith that the decisions that are coming from the court are motivated by anything other than us doing the job that we were elected to do and took an oath. Right, exactly. Yeah, when, when especially when the recent Elliot Larson legislation was modified, everyone's, didn't the Supreme Court just rule last year that this included it? And didn't the AG have an opinion on this already that several years ago that incorporated sexual orientation and gender identity? And I said, yes, but that's judge-made law. This is not legislation that's in place. I equated it to the Roe v. Wade situation. I said, if there was a federal law protecting abortion, then whatever happened in Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision would be moved because there would already be something in place. And you could see the gears turning in their head like, oh, that makes complete sense now. Obviously, that's one of the reasons why the legislature will put certain bills forward in order to further protect what the Supreme Court has already said is there. Is the interpretation of what is there. And, and, you know, even further on on this topic, I was the author of that, of the Rausch opinion. And it was based, you know, I mean, it was relied, you know, very heavily on the Bostick decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. And, you know, if you follow the U.S. Supreme Court at all and see, you know, some of some of the decisions that they've made, they could have another case that comes that changes or that, you know, overrules parts mm-hmm. of Bostic or, and so you you can't just take a, you know, a judicial decision and say, okay, well, now we have that protection because we've seen, you know, in other, in other circumstances where that, you know, it might, might take 30 or 50 years, but it could change. And so yeah. that's why, again, you know, three branches of government, legislature, you know, putting something in statute and providing very clear, concise, this is, these are the protections, these are the rights. It it makes our job easier. Absolutely. That being said, do you have any other final thoughts you'd like to share before we close out? Yeah. The only other thing that I always give a plug for, I would really urge anyone in the legal profession to make sure that they give back and do that, whether they're a part of an association, they feel a connection to give back in any type of public service, 
or even just mentoring, mentoring a new lawyer or a lawyer that's entering into a different area of law that may be new to them. I really benefit from all of those things in my legal career and continue to benefit from it. And I think seeking out mentors when you're young and then giving back and serving as a mentor, and you can do it in so many ways. It doesn't have to be a formal arrangement or relationship, but just making sure that you're looking at the profession saying, you know, I'm part of this and I'm part of this profession, not only being a success, improving, making sure that we are serving people of the state. Again, thank you so much, Chief Justice Clement, for joining us today on the first episode of Working Towards Nine. It was an honor and a privilege to interview you about the future of the Michigan Supreme Court. Thank you for listening to Working Towards Nine. Music is provided by David Benny. To learn more about this podcast and WLAM, please visit our website at womenlawyers.org. The views expressed during this episode do not necessarily reflect the opinions of WLAM or its members.